Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I am a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is very interesting. I have the pleasure of hosting Linda Martin. Linda Martin was a patient that believes the healthcare system had failed her. She is going to describe to me and to you, as you listen to this, her story as she received Levaquin, which is a form of an antibiotic that belongs to a category called fluoroquinolones. Linda received the antibiotic for a medical indication, but she experienced severe side effects and problems from the medications. And this experience led her down a path that made her discover so much of what she describes as potential corruption between the FDA, manufacturers, investors, even presidents and donors. As I listen to this story, it is really fascinating to me. And I really would love for you to share your thoughts <clears throat> with me, with Linda and with others as you listen to this story. Ultimately, our goal in healthcare as healthcare professionals is to be very transparent and to assure that patients receive the best of care. Everybody who is listening to this show and everybody in the universe is either a patient today, was a former patient, or will be a future patient. Wouldn't you want to make sure that the healthcare system serves you right when you are a patient? Wouldn't you want to be sure that physicians are doing their best for your care? You're not going to escape the healthcare system. We all are going to be inpatients, outpatients. We're going to be in the hospital at some point. And you would want to make sure that by doing this, by entering that healthcare system, you are receiving the best of care. What Linda is going to describe is going to make you think, is going to make you pause. This is a whistleblower story that really happened because somebody got sick, received a treatment, and then discovered that this treatment has side effects that were really covered by a lot of people, including the what she describes as the FDA commissioner. Some of what you will hear today is not 100% validated with legal evidence per se. Uh, Linda is going to describe her conversations with the FBI, her attempt at a lawsuit. This is her story. And I really believe that this story is a lesson for all of us to understand what exactly we are dealing with. I would hope that we are able to help in exposing more of these problems that we are facing in healthcare. Because as I said, ultimately, we are all going to be entering and experiencing this healthcare system. And we want to have faith and trust, not only with the providers and the physicians, but also in the system as a whole. When Linda was experiencing some of the side effects from the Levaquin that she received, she was told she's crazy. She was referred to a psychiatrist. Some of her symptoms were dismissed. And I do think that it is critical to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, how would we feel when we are dismissed if we have certain complaints and certain issues that we are dealing with. I hope you enjoy uh, this healthcare unfiltered special episode and more importantly, to learn from this episode as much as I did. And before I air the episode, I taped with Linda Martin. I wanna make sure I plug my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story of the Monsanto trials and the search of justice. This is the story of how I was involved personally in the litigation against Monsanto, the manufacturer of Roundup, which has been linked to the uh, development of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I served as a medical oncology expert witness in the first three trials that went in front of a jury against Monsanto. These three trials were won by the plaintiff. I share my story of how I was involved in this litigation, a lot of the evidence that was actually uncovered in the trials. And uh, I hope that you are able to 
read this book and let me know what, what your opinion is. You can find this book on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, or on my publisher's website, Johns Hopkins University Press. Without further ado, Linda Martin, a shocking whistleblower story exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered. Just a little bit about you. Uh, I mean, who you are, what you do, background about you as the individual, you know, whatever you want to share with listeners and viewers uh, so they can just know who you are. Okay. Uh, thanks for having me, Chadi. I appreciate it. Um, I have a background in healthcare. I was in executive positions in healthcare for my career for 30 years or so um, before I was injured by the antibiotic Leviquin. Um, I took it about 15 years ago now, although I had taken it several times before that as well. And it became so problematic from a health standpoint that I had to stop working. I discovered that many people are in the same position I am um, that have been injured by not only Leviquin, but other drugs in the class of um, drugs called fluoroquinolones, so Cipro, Avalox, um, and a number of other drugs. So that brought my professional historical career to an end. But for the past 10 years or so, I've been part of a national drug safety group that you participate in as well called the Southern Network on Adverse Events. And so that group of healthcare researchers, physicians have helped research the drugs that impacted me and so many others. Um, and I really appreciate that group's help. So that's how I got to be where I am at this point. Thank you, Linda. And I really uh, appreciate, and usually when we get on these calls, I um, learn a lot from you uh, as a patient and an advocate. I'd like to start really by uh, a conversation me and you had, so at least to give the listeners a little bit of a background. Um, when I invited you to come on the podcast to share your story and what happened with you when you consumed Leviquin and how this turned out into a whistleblower story, which will go over all of this, we went back and forth that you were a little bit uncomfortable being on camera. Right. And I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see you on camera. Uh, Thank you. But uh, why were you afraid? Maybe I'd like to start there and go backwards. What, 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 sure. what where was the fear coming from? Well, I have been threatened. I was verbally threatened. Um, I have exposed what's been this long journey. I exposed some financial conflicts of interest related to Leviquin and Cipro and quite honestly, a number of other drugs. And there was a small news story written about it about six, seven years ago at this point. And two weeks after that news story ran in a in a small um, newspaper on Long Island, I was um, verbally threatened, I felt, by two young men. And I don't know whether it was associated with my exposing this financial conflict of interest or not, but the timing was certainly interesting. Um, there was a Starbucks that I used to go to every afternoon at the same time. It was kind of my excuse to make sure I got out of the house every day. And um, they were sitting outside at a table in front of Starbucks. And as I approached them, they stopped talking. And these young men were probably in their 20s. And one of them turned to me and said, are you feeling okay? And I said, yes. <clears throat> and he said, are you sure you're feeling okay? And I said, yes. And he said, are you sure you're going to be feeling okay? And at that point, I was very confused and disturbed and I went into the Starbucks and my first thought was are you telling me that you left some kind of explosive device in the Starbucks it was kind of my first thought and I looked around and I didn't see any backpacks or anything unusual I was in there every day and everything looked fine so by the time I ordered my drink and got my drink I was you know kind of chiding myself for being so silly about this and I left the Starbucks and the two men were sitting there still. And as I came out the door, the one stopped again and said, are you sure you're still feeling okay? 
are you sure you're going to stay feeling okay? Something to that effect. And at that point, I was very um, concerned and I hurried to my car. Unfortunately, I didn't think about getting my phone out and taking a picture. I should have done that. But I did go back to the Starbucks later to see if they had any outdoor cameras, which they did not. And um, it didn't appear the men had been inside because they weren't drinking any Starbucks um, products. So I did talk to the police. They said they keep an eye out. They said, chances are, given that I was involved with um, whistleblowing, so to speak, that it was likely associated with that. But that was not the only event. Um, subsequently, I had someone try and turn off my alarm system in my house. Um, somebody actually, I believe, was in my house at one point. So, um, yeah, I felt un unsafe. Um, again, I want to make sure that I'm clear. I don't know if it was associated with my whistleblowing, but the timing was certainly um, interesting. And then another um, piece of this, and we're jumping to the end of my story, so to speak, is that I was also working with a freelance journalist to report on some of these issues. And he was also threatened shortly after I was, in the months after. He and I were working on uh, researching um, the conflicts of interest and a broader piece of the picture. And um, at one point I wrote to him and I said, when do you think you're going to be able to publish what you've discovered? And he wrote back, before I die, I hope. And I called him and I said, are you having threats too? Are you feeling unsafe? He said, yes, but I'm not going to talk about it on the phone. And a couple of months later, we've been working some more. And I asked him again in an email, when are you going to get this published? And he said, um, again, before I die, I hope. Again, I called him and I said, you know, are you having more threats? Are you more concerned? He said, yes. And again, he said, I'm not talking about on the phone. And then um, he did publish part of the story, one of the kind of tangential parts of it. And then two weeks later, he died in an accident falling downstairs. So the big picture does make me fearful. Yeah. I don't know whether any yeah. of it's related, but... Um, yeah, we lost a, an amazing journalist and someone who'd become a good friend who um, it turns out had told his literary agent because he was in the process of writing a book. She um, sent me an email and she said she was shocked to hear about his death and that she specifically remembered the last conversation she had with him. He said, if I end up dead, it's not suicide. So we need to take this seriously. You know, these are important are you, issues. Are you able to share his name with us, the journalist? Yes, Scott Christensen. Yes, and you can find his obituary. Um, it talks about all the extensive work he did. Now, I need to say his wife is convinced to this day it was an accident. It was done in his, he fell in his home, um, down the stairs while she was at home. Um, but that's not to say there wasn't more involved um sure and i'll just kind of leave it at that boy well that's uh but yeah it's it's been a wild um crazy journey it involves some of the wealthiest people in this country so let's take it, it involves... let's take it back sure. let's go back to the beginning okay. because that, okay. that is really is a is an interesting start of understanding the magnitude of fear and what you've been through um so I want to go to the beginnings. Uh, you were sure. a healthcare executive uh, working. How did this everything start and how did you come into contact with the healthcare system uh, to the degree that you started receiving fluoroquinolones, as you said? So how take us right. back memory, sure. down memory lanes, although these sure. are not great. I took Leviquin last time about, like I say, 15 years ago, but I had taken it four or five times before then. And every time I took it, I felt worse afterwards and just didn't connect the dots that it was Leviquin that was causing some of these new medical issues I was developing. I felt pain and had headaches and a variety of other rather minor things. I was given it initially for sinus infection. In fact, I was given it repeatedly for sinus infection. But my previous thought was because I have a lot of allergies that if you have a side effect or an allergic reaction to a medication, it's going to be an anaphylactic type response. 
So I'd gotten hives in the past. I'd gotten throat swelling in the past. And that's what I was looking for. In my mind, that was that was what a drug adverse reaction was. And I wasn't having those issues. Um, so I would go back to the doctor weeks or months after I took Leviquin the first time and said, I still don't feel good. And the doctor said, hey, well, you sound kind of congested. Have some more Leviquin. So I get some more Leviquin. And I take that and then I'd feel worse and had more pain and just didn't feel good, was lethargic. Um, and so I'd go back to the doctor again and he'd say, well, you know, maybe you still have a little bit of infection here. Um, have some more Leviquin. No tests were done. There were no um, swabs or lab work or anything that indicated that I did have a sinus infection. It was just the presumption. So this went on until the last time I took Leviquin, which again was about 15 years ago. And that time it really hammered me. I didn't know what happened. It was as if a bomb had gone off in my body. I just felt terrible. Um, I ended up going to the emergency room at Mayo Clinic and checked myself in late one night and sat in the waiting room. It was very busy. And I waited for about an hour or two and just thought, this is nuts. I can't even describe what's going on with me. I don't know. I'm just going to go home. So I checked myself out. I went home and I laid in bed in agony. The pain was just unbelievable. I had a baby years ago with natural childbirth and no anesthetic. And that pain was a walk in the park compared to the pain I was feeling from Leviquin, although I didn't connect it at the time. So in the morning, I went back to the ER and early, like at five o'clock in the morning, got checked in, told the doctor I didn't know what was going on. I was in horrible pain that I felt like every cell in my body was shutting down. There was this odd sensation of death looming. And so he, I wouldn't say he rolled his eyes at me, but didn't necessarily take me seriously. And so he said, we'll do some tests. And he left and I had lab work done and EKG done and a number of other things. And then he came back in and he said, everything's fine except for the EKG. I need to go back to my primary care doctor and get that checked out. And then he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you know, an emergency room is really for a person who has an emergency and uh, keep that in mind next time. So I was frustrated. I was upset. I had no answers. I was feeling as awful as I did when I got there. I was wheeled out as patients are to the, to the curb by the emergency room, got out of the wheelchair and there I was, staggered to my car and went home and spent six months um, basically laying down on the couch. I was so weak that I had to hold a glass of water in two hands. Um, the weakness was terrible. I remember once- You had, you had like pains all over, like pains everywhere? Yes, pains everywhere. Um, every joint, every muscle, um, had a hard time getting dressed. Um, couldn't get my arms bent back to, to get my shirt on. Um, one morning I was so weak that I literally had to crawl out of bed to go to the bathroom. Was just totally confused couldn't figure out what had happened. Um, and then one day I was uh, like about six months after this Mayo visit, I was watching the news and on comes a story about tendon warnings being put on the Leviquin label. And I thought, gosh, that's that antibiotic I was taking. And I had been taking or having, uh, I'd had tendonitis at that point already diagnosed. And so I thought, I'm going to go back and check my medical records. So I got all my medical records together and went through them and could clearly see when I look back that every time I took Leviquin, I was back at the doctor's for some new medical issue. Um, for example, panic attacks started at one point, and that was clearly within a week after the last dose of Leviquin. Headaches. Um, bladder spasms, more pain, just a, a wide range of things. Um, what I didn't realize initially was the mental toll, the confusion, um, the faulty thinking. You know, I, 
the insomnia was was crazy. It um, I was sleeping an hour or two a night. And instead of thinking, oh my gosh, why am I only sleeping an hour a night? Um, was like, oh, isn't this interesting? I only need an hour of sleep now. Um, so there's a very odd um, disconnect with reality. I'm sure during that time that I had dark urine. I think I was probably somewhat jauntous because I knew I didn't look right, but I didn't stop long enough to think why. So there are just a lot of things that were going on that uh, that I didn't recognize. I remember I was at stoplights, for example. I was driving still at that point, and I'd be at a stoplight, and I'd find people honking behind me. And I couldn't figure out why they were honking. Well, the light was green, but I'd been sitting there and, and not realizing the light had changed. Um, someone had taken me to the grocery store, and we turned in the parking lot, but we're far from the from the door of the parking spaces and um i opened the door to get out um luckily she grabbed me and i had my seatbelt on so i didn't step out of the car while it was moving but it was very odd it became very claustrophobic um couldn't get into elevators um yeah it was a it was a wild very upsetting time but i did discover that levaquin um, can cause a lot of side effects because at that point I looked at the at the drug label. And the other thing I did was go online and find other people who were also reporting these kinds of side effects. And um, there was one person who had written a, a very extensive report, which was fascinating and extremely helpful, um, called the Phlox Report. So what happens is if you've been injured by a fluoroquinolone, you're considered to be phloxed. That's the um, the term that the community uses. And so I learned a lot about what other people were going through. And I connected with a law enforcement officer in Illinois who'd been injured by Levaquin. And he and I talked about it. Um, Linda, are, sure. were, were all the injuries similar to yours? Like, I mean, you, you, what you describe is this uh, joint, muscle aches, pains, confusion, everything. As you were trying to understand if others have had similar issues, a, how are you going about this? Like, how are you finding these people? And have you noticed there's a wide range or are they all similar to what you're feeling? Um, good question. There were not a lot of people initially talking about online. There were a handful. There are a couple of websites. David's, the law enforcement officer, his website called quinnstories.com seemed more science-based and he seemed um, like he had done his research. So, but yes, to answer your question, there were similarities, there were uniquenesses. Some people suffered more in one area than another, but there were, there was commonality for sure. We connected, David said he'd been communicating with a former drug representative out of um, Pennsylvania. So he started joining our calls. And then he had also talked to a professor at the University of Kansas, Dr. Alan Red, who was a DNA anthropologist. He was injured by Levaquin. So now there were four of us communicating on a regular basis that had been injured by Levaquin. Um, There's a teacher in California who was injured by Levaquin. And then we eventually added a woman from Maryland who was injured by Levaquin. So that made our kind of small group of six. And from there, I believe we really were the foundation for what is now a worldwide awareness and massive communication about the dangers of these antibiotics. There are other people who certainly had a huge role in the beginning, the person who wrote the Flox reports and a couple of other websites. But um, we finally got extensive awareness of the dangers of these drugs. Um, well, what one might say, Linda, is that everything that we take has, you know, side effects. I right. mean, obviously, uh, you know, you could take a Tylenol and some people get uh, liver issues, Advil, which I'm a big fan of, unfortunately, because of my back pain, but, right. you know, it could cause right. gastritis, ulcers. So there are folks who may be listening to this and say, okay, I mean, there are side effects, they are rare. Uh, unfortunately, they happen to you and a bunch of other people. What's the big deal? Well, I think that um, in this case, the big deal is that there are other alternatives. And so most, the majority, according to the FDA's own data of the people who 
have taken these antibiotics, have taken it for routine infections. So they took it for a routine sinus infection like I did, a routine UTI, routine prostate infection, minor skin infection. So it's a big gun, so to speak, antibiotic for something that's very small. And so there were alternatives. Um, what we know is that looking at the FDA data itself, there were thousands and thousands of people who were injured, many who died, who didn't need to die and didn't need to be injured. Now, in 2016, in part because of the work that so many of us did in raising awareness and working with the FDA, um, we did get warnings on the black in the black box on the Leviquin label to say that they can cause and have been associated with potentially permanent adverse events that are disabling. And that includes central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, and tendon issues. So the extent of the damage that these drugs can cause is massive. It can be permanent. They can be life-threatening. And they have to do with your most basic body functions, breathing, cardiac issues in some cases, um, your ability to think, um, your memory, which is a big issue. That was an issue that um, affects a lot of people, including me. There was a period of time when I couldn't remember a thing I'd done with my daughter growing up, and it was terrifying. I had zero memories for a period of weeks. Um, so yeah, these are these are dangerous drugs. I do not want them taken off the market. I think that if you have a life-threatening issue, a sepsis or something, they need to be available. But if it's not life-threatening, I don't think these drugs should be used. They're being used now in children, even though it's off-label. Um, the FDA is aware of that and has not taken any action to try and um, discourage that. Um, they're being used extensively in the elderly population. I know from my parents um, in the town where they live, if an older person goes into the emergency room with an upper respiratory issue, there's a presumption of pneumonia without testing and automatically they start an IV drip of Leviquin. And so we're sending potentially these older people home who then become less able to walk, less able to think clearly. They go downhill and potentially um, their lives are ended sooner than they need to be, but it's never recognized to being associated with Leviquin because they're older and they were going downhill anyway. Um, I would argue my father is an example of that. Yeah. So. Okay. So clearly you were having these side effects which were debilitating. I'm so sorry that you've gone, you've gone through what looks, appears to be an awful time in your life. And, uh, Thank you. and you connected with people who were experiencing the same issue and all of this. And you started having some communication with regulatory authorities, looks like, to to raise awareness Where's the cover-up? Where's the whistleblowing issue? Okay. Um, Dr. Bennett, who runs the Sonar Group out of the University of South Carolina, and I had met with the FDA. Um, first of all, going back a little bit farther, we'd actually submitted three citizen petitions to the FDA asking for more warnings on Leviquin. At the time, Dr. Margaret Hamburg was FDA commissioner. And um, we just felt like over the previous years that we had been asking for more warnings, the action that was needed was not taken to add more warnings to these drugs. And so in November of 2014, Dr. Bennett and I met in Washington, D.C. with staff from the Senate Health Committee to ask the Senate Health Committee staff to help us get the FDA to put more warnings on the Leviquin and Cipro and other fluoroquinolone labels. They were very nice, very thoughtful, um, seemed interested, and Dr. Bennett and I thanked them, uh, met with some legislators while we were there, and went home. And it wasn't until late January that I started wondering why, when the data so clearly showed that the these drugs needed more warnings based on the number of deaths, based on the number of serious adverse events reported to the FDA, why weren't warnings being added? And I suddenly realized, I wonder if money's involved. I guess I should have thought about that earlier, but I didn't. And it took me about five minutes to go online and find that the husband of the FDA commissioner, Dr. Hamburg, her husband, was the co-CEO of a hedge fund that held as much as half a billion dollars of stock 
in Johnson & Johnson, the maker of Levaquin. I was outraged. I was shocked. I was um, just stunned that this could be happening. So while we were asking for warnings to put on the, be put on the Johnson & Johnson antibiotic Levaquin that had injured so many people, and the FDA under Dr. Hamburg was not doing enough to warn people, her husband's hedge fund was making money off of Johnson & Johnson, which was making money from Levaquin. Because her husband shares in the profits of the hedge fund, that means money made from Johnson & Johnson stock was benefiting Dr. Hamburg as FDA commissioner and her husband. And that's, first of all, it's illegal. There's a conflict of interest statute that clearly states that an FDA commissioner cannot have financial interest in any company that she regulates. So I wrote to the Senate Health Committee staff that um, Dr. Bennett and I had met with. So on, Jan on February 4th of 2015, I wrote an email and said, I'm requesting a congressional hearing to investigate FDA Commissioner Dr. Hamburg, her husband, and her husband's hedge fund. And the very next day, February 5th, Dr. Hamburg announced her resignation. Wow. Wow. Which was, yeah, wow, big time wow. I have no proof that she resigned because I'd asked for resignation, but the timing was interesting to say the least. So there's a broader set of issues around uh, this they, as well. Are, are, they, are they unable to investigate her after she got, after she resigned? That's a good question. Um, I got an email from an attorney with the Senate Health Committee a week or so later saying that he had forwarded my request for investigation, my information to the Health and Human Services Office of, Invest of Inspector General and to the Ethics Office. And I thought, well, that's good. Maybe they'll investigate. And so when I hadn't heard anything by May, a few months later, I wrote back to the attorney that uh, had written to me and asked for status. And he called me and said, the ethics office said, since she was no longer an employee, they wouldn't investigate. And that was frustrating because she was still an employee for 45 days. Her last day wasn't actually until the end of March. So she stayed for another 45 days. And um, that was plenty of time to at least start looking at the issue, which was very clear and easy to document. Um, and then the HHS OIG said that we had to enter the complaints online, which a number of us did, but nothing ever happened from there. What's so interesting about this is that her conflict of interest were not my opinion. I got the data eventually right off the Securities and Exchange website. The hedge fund has to post its holdings every quarter. And so every quarter that Dr. Hamburg was FDA commissioner, the hedge fund, her husband's hedge fund, posts what their stock holdings are on the SEC website. Well, when you look at those quarters, you can tell that on a regular basis, the hedge fund holds massive amounts of stock in drug companies. So when I did the research on the just the major drug companies, about 25 of them, um, when Dr. Hamburg became FDA commissioner, the hedge fund held $800 million in those drug companies, which was appalling in itself. She never should have been FDA commissioner with that. But nonetheless, in those same companies when she left, it had ballooned to $3 billion. So that was a 300% increase in the amount of drug stock held by the FDA commissioner's husband during the time that she was FDA commissioner. There's something really, really wrong with this picture. For sure. And I have not been able to get Congress to hold a hearing. And um, it's been very frustrating. This is crazy. Um, so did you, um, I mean, you tried to go the route of asking Congress to hold a hearing and investigate. That did not go anywhere. Did you do anything different? Did you, that, that's when you start talking to journalists and, and try to figure out, like, you know, uh, did you talk to you talk to lawyers? Like, how what happened when you tried to go the, I guess the, uh, 
uh, I don't know what route, the congressional route right. that did not really right. to be favorable. I um, The next thing I did when I found out that nothing had happened by May, six months or four months after I contacted the Senate Health Committee, um, I thought, well, maybe DOJ would investigate. So I called DOJ in Washington and they said, well, you have to contact the FBI. So I thought, well, I can do that. Picked up the phone, called the Washington, D.C. FBI office. So you, talked you, to somebody. But, but you just call like an 800 number? Like, do you? Do, yeah. do you okay. I looked it up online and there it was. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, I tend to be a little um, focused sometimes. Um, yeah. So I called the FBI and talked to someone for half an hour. And uh, they kept putting me on hold. And I uh, came back. He said, I've been talking to my supervisor and you've given us enough to open a case. I said, great. He said, you'll hear from someone in a week to 10 days. I said, good. So about a week later, I get a call from an FBI agent in Washington, D.C. in the FBI field office and said he'd been assigned to the case. And we spent about half an hour talking and he said, send me all your information. So I did. And I have emails, you know, from him saying, you know, I received it, that kind of thing. So I have documentation of that. And he told me, he said, here's how it works. He said, you tell you know, me everything. What, 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 uh -huh. year, what, what sure. year were we in now? What year? 2015? We're in two, two, still 2015. We're still 15. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So six months after I asked the, the um, for the congressional hearing. So he told me, this is how it works. He said, you tell me everything and I tell you nothing. <laughs> and wow. that's pretty much how it's been. So um, I gave him everything I had and I sent him additional information um, over time. I did call him or send him email, I guess, after I'd been threatened. And I sent him that information one evening. And at six o'clock the next morning, he called me, said, you got to tell me what's going on. So I did tell him about the threat. And he said, just to, you know, keep talking to the local police. And that's all I could do. So been a little bit frustrated with the FBI, although um, it was about maybe three years ago, four years ago at this point, I don't even remember. I had investigated beyond Levaquin and Cipro, of course, at that point, I'd found $3 billion worth of drug stock conflicts. But a major piece of those, or an important piece of those, are opioids. So while the opioid epidemic was exploding, the FDA commissioner had huge financial interest in opioid-related companies. So her husband's hedge fund had stock in companies that make opioids, companies that distribute opioids, like the companies that have been sued lately, um, Mayor Bergen and Cardinal and some of the others, um, companies that sell opioids like Walgreens and some of the other CVS that have been sued lately for the opioids, companies that treat opioid issues like um, make, uh, naloxone and um, treat opioid constipation, um, the, whole, the whole continuum of opioid-related issues, um, which is, again, appalling as people are dying. You know, these parents who have a child who died of opioid overdoses, you know, I just have to wonder how I would feel as a parent in their shoes to find out the FDA commissioner was making money through her husband's hedge fund off of the companies that made those drugs. Um, but in any case, I'd taken the opioid information to one of the state attorney generals. And I'd met with, just walked in the door with my information, talked to the agent that was on duty. And she was a little skeptical at first. And by the end of the conversation I had with her, by the time I showed her the documentation, she said, I am personally putting this on the attorney general's office now. And um, I'll make sure he sees it. I thought, great. So about a week later, I get a call from this attorney general's office staff. And she says, look, she says, I know you feel like the um, FBI investigation has kind of gone into a black hole. But she said, I have an update. She said, it's not an official one because the FBI won't give our office an update any more than they'll give a private citizen. But here's what we were told. We were told that the FBI investigation is still open and it's active and it's a hornet's nest. And to please let them finish their job. So I thought, great, this is good. You know, it didn't go in a black hole. They're still working on it. 
But that was a number of years ago, and still DOJ has done nothing. There are two other pieces of this that are important. And in some ways made me even more fearful, so to speak. Um, this whole story that started off with my injury from an antibiotic and has led me down this crazy path. Um, the story actually has connections to two, di two different presidents. So starting with President Obama, who for transparency, I voted for twice. James Simons was the board chair of the hedge fund of Renaissance Technologies Hedge Fund, the hedge fund that employed Dr. Hamburg's husband. He was the board chair when Obama named Dr. Hamburg to be FDA commissioner. And he was not a particularly big political donor as far as I can tell. He certainly supported Democrats, but was not a huge donor. After Dr. Hamburg became FDA commissioner, which potentially benefited James Simons because they held so much drug stock in the hedge fund, James Simons started donating to the Obama Foundation what is now a, a million dollars. He, James Simons, ended up having dinner at the White House. Um, the first time Obama was reported being seen after his post-presidency vacation was at the James Simons Foundation. So it feels like there was a relationship between James Simons and Obama, maybe more on the James Simons part than the Obama part. But nonetheless, I'm not an attorney, but it feels kind of pay to play on James Simon's part. The other co-CEO, in addition to Dr. Hamburg's husband, is uh, Robert Mercer. And Robert Mercer is a person who's credited for getting Donald Trump elected. Robert Mercer funded Breitbart News, funded Cambridge Analytica, which stole the Facebook data, which influenced the election. Um, he funded the pact. He put um, Steve Bannon on the Trump team. And there are news reports that just plain gave Trump or Mercer credit for getting Trump elected. So this whole story has major funders of political parties on both sides of the aisle covered. So I have felt a little bit like Democrats weren't going to go after this because it might harm one of their big donors. Republicans weren't going to go after this because it might harm one of their big donors. So I have felt a little bit, potentially, I don't have proof that this was a case, but it has certainly made me wonder whether that was involved. The other roadblock I think I have come up against in terms of Congress is that we know from recent reporting that Democrats in Congress have been accused of having stock trading issues related to their own conflicts. Republicans have had issues. Um, so we got Democrats and Republican members of Congress with their own stock trading issues. So it's been difficult for me to navigate some media outlets that lean one way or lean the other way. Members of Congress who worry about donors, worry about their own stock issues. And here I am, you know, what is it, seven years now, after I first blew the whistle, so to speak, that nobody's been held accountable in terms of my side of the story. And it's frustrating and it's deeply disturbing. So that's kind of jumping to the end. Just to go back, with everything that happened to you, did you file a lawsuit against the manufacturers of Levaquin, did you did you go that route and saying I need to be compensated for my injuries? Was there any liability issues or any court filings in that uh, realm? Yes, that's a good question. Um, there were five of us who filed a lawsuit um, against Dr. Hamburg and her husband and the hedge fund 
and Johnson and Johnson. They were all named in the lawsuit. It was a RICO lawsuit. And What's we RICO? had What's a RICO lawsuit. It's it's a racketeering lawsuit was the legal framework for it. Um, we were arguing that Dr. Hamburg had a conflict of interest that she wasn't um, allowed to have, and we were claiming damage to health and income. And there was one court hearing where one of the five plaintiffs, not myself, but someone else was in the room, and our one attorney, and Dr. Hamburg, her husband, and Johnson Johnson had a whole room full of attorneys. I mean, they were there were dozens of people in that room, and there were just the two of us on our side. But nonetheless, um, the lawsuit was eventually dismissed by the judge without prejudice, as far as I could tell, because the legal framework was wrong. Um, we were arguing damage to health and income, and the judge made it clear that, Rico, you have to argue damage to business or property. And we weren't arguing that. But what was interesting was um, that Dr. Hamburg, through her attorney, said, that she didn't have to do what we wanted her to do in terms of adding warnings to the Leviquin label. And she didn't have to do what we wanted her to do when we wanted her to do it. And legally, that's true. She didn't have to do that. But she also had a legal responsibility to make sure that drugs are safe and that people don't needlessly die or are needlessly injured. So um, that was kind of an interesting response through her attorney. On the Renaissance side, um, they said, yes, Hamburg was married to their co-CEO. And yes, they held Johnson Johnson stock. They didn't deny that. Um, but they argued it's okay. So from my perspective, both Dr. Hamburg, FDA commissioner, former, and her husband said, yeah, we did it. So what? You know, there's no denial. So the lawsuit was dismissed because the legal framework, you said, was not accurate. So you were unable to refile a different lawsuit because, I mean, technically, wasn't your business and career injured because of this? I mean, you weren't able to work. So, uh, I mean. Oh, yeah. yeah. We could have filed a, a product liability lawsuit, but we chose not to do that for a number of reasons. Um, timing was an issue at that point the statute of limitations was an issue. Um, documentation is difficult. The, there are very few Leviquin lawsuits that have been successful. Um, the tendon ruptures were successful because you have an x-ray and there's a tendon rupture. It's difficult to prove pain. It's difficult to prove um, a number of things. I had um, abnormal EEGs, abnormal EKGs, abnormal EMGs. Um, you know, I had a number of tests that were abnormal, but those are not ones that someone could easily make the argument that it was a result of Leviquin that you took five years ago. So um, we chose not to go down the product liability route. With that said, my biggest concern is for the healthcare system, for the drug safety issues in this country, we cannot have an FDA commissioner having financial interest in more than $3 billion. $3 billion was just in the major drug companies. If you look at the list of drugs or of companies held that uh, the FDA commissioner's husband held stock in through his hedge fund, it's much more extensive than $3 billion. I mean, there are all kinds of medical companies beyond the ones I looked at. Plus they um, had stock in companies that are food related that the FDA commissioner oversees, and they had stock in drug and uh, tobacco companies. So tobacco, foods, drugs, billions and billions of dollars. Um, more recently, issues that have been in the news, um, insulin, we know people have been dying because they can't afford their insulin and they've been trying to uh, manage that. Um, Dr. Hamburg benefited from stock that her husband's head fund had in companies that make insulin. The baby formula companies, um, there was no competition in this country because the foreign companies were not allowed to come to the U.S. And yet Dr. Hamburg, through her husband's hedge fund, had financial interest in the U.S. baby formula companies. Um, opioids we talked about, myelin EpiPens. Um, parents were 
you know, outraged that they couldn't afford a Mylan EpiPen to keep their child safe at school um, while the price of EpiPens was going through the roof. Um, her husband's hedge fund held stock in um, Mylan. Um, there was a case where Dr. Hamburg personally went to Pennsylvania to meet with a drug company. Um, the name escapes me, but there's a picture of her in the paper. Um, she was trying to talk to them about making an Ebola vaccine. And a couple of days later, um, there is an article in the paper about how the price or the value of that stock, the price of that stock had increased because Dr. Hamburg had personally visited the drug company a few days earlier and her husband's hedge fund had stock in that drug company. Um, the examples go on and on. Wow. So, so fast forward a little bit now. So you talked about the 15, the FBI, the lawsuit, all of this now is dismissed. Where, where are things, where do things stand right this minute, right now? Like, I'm, for example, I'm, is the investigation still ongoing? To, I mean, we're taping this in January 2023. Um, and by the time this airs, will be maybe like February or, or March. But is the investigation still ongoing? Are you still in touch with the FBI? Like, wh what's happening? And is Hamburg completely, uh, the issue with Hamburg and FDA and her husband completely done now, gone? Like, where? take us through, let's try right. to tighten these loose ends. Okay. Um, I'm hoping the FBI investigation is still going on. I'm hoping it's sitting at DOJ somewhere waiting for someone to have time to move it forward. Um, in terms of media, I continue to reach out almost every day trying to find someone who's willing to cover it. I've got some hopeful leads right now with media, and I'm still hoping that within the next six months, there will be major media coverage of this, finally. Um, I continue to talk to members of Congress when I can. It's very hard to reach members of Congress anymore compared to what it was when Dr. Bennett and I were reaching out. But I continue to try that route. Um, I contact attorneys from time to time and ask for their opinion. Um, so I continue. I'm, I I won't let this go. I mean, you, I won't. Um, Linda, have you thought about writing a book? I did write a book. It was on Amazon for a while. And I took it down because I wanted to update it. I wanted to clean it up. I really need a co-author who knows how to write. Um, you know, it wasn't well-written. Um, I'll volunteer myself anytime because, you know, I, okay. I, you know, I have a book. I'm, yeah, you know, I have a book that, uh, but. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. I'd be more than happy to, to joint venture this with, with you. It's not about authorship. It's about getting it out there. But yes, it, it needs to be out. Yeah, it needs to be out there. I've got a screen. I've got a screenplay written for it. I mean, I've done everything I can in hopes of getting the story out. You know, this is all about getting the message out because it has to stop. You know, other drug uh, uh, FDA commissioners have had their own conflicts in different ways. They used to work for a drug company or like Dr. Gottlieb, you know, he leaves the FDA and he goes to be the board chair of Pfizer. At least he admits it when he when he talks to the media. But these, uh, this has to stop. This, this, um, the drug companies being in bed with the FDA needs to stop. We need a system where clinical trials are done in a an objective, non-drug company supported way. Um, there are just massive changes that we need to keep the population safe um, in terms of drugs. And this is one way to try and change the system. This is the worst, the biggest example. And, you know, one other thing I should point out is that there was another FDA commissioner named um, Crawford who was actually charged. He was fired when they found out that his wife forgot to sell $50,000 worth of stock. I think it was in maybe Pepsi and Walmart or something, maybe a drug company. I don't really remember. But they took him to court. They charged him. He pled guilty. Um, and this was for $50,000. And he was only he only did it for like three months. This is nothing compared to what Dr. Hamburg has done and gotten away with so far. The visual image I have is of Dr. Hamburg, her husband, the billionaires who are the other executives at the hedge fund of literally stepping over dead and dying bodies on their way to the bank. That's the picture. That's what's happened. And it's wrong. 
but but you also were successful i mean you have a, there is a <clears throat> right there is a black box warning right now on levaquin for the uh, right i mean i mean i would say that is, that was a major success for your efforts it was it was a major success and what happened was that 6 months after dr hamburg left the fda the fda an fda epidemiologist made a presentation in writing that said we discovered in 2013, so two years before Dr. Hamburg left the FDA, the FDA discovered that Levaquin and Cipro can cause disabling permanent side effects that are multi-system, and it was never disclosed. So she admitted that in 2013, they discovered it. And then by 2016, we got the black box warning. So yes, we that was a huge victory because I think if we hadn't pushed, we probably wouldn't have gotten any of it done, including the presentation by the epidemiologist. But yes, that was a huge victory, a huge victory. Linda, there's so much that you are going to leave me and my listeners uh, thinking through. This is really very provocative and... Um... Uh, first, I'm very grateful that you are sharing the story here uh, as well. And I, I want to definitely, um, I hope that your efforts will culminate in in more uh, success and exposing those at fault if they exist. I mean, our goal is to seek the truth and, um, right. and uh, you know, being disclosure and being transparent is very critical to disclosing the truth. And I always say that, wherever you are in the spectrum uh you are going to be a patient at some point i mean right. whoever you are uh, all the characters in the story that you describe are at some point going to be a patient they right. can't escape the healthcare system they just right. simply can't and right. when you are on the receiving end of healthcare you want to you want you hope that you are going to get the best of care, the transparent care and the care that you deserve. So um, uh, I congratulate you on everything that you have been doing so far. And uh, if I can be of any additional help, I'm more than happy to do so. Before I let you go, Linda, is there anything else that you want to say or share? Anything else I may have forgotten to ask you that is really of relevance? I, you know, maybe I've skipped a couple of things that are important. So please... Uh, feel free to add any additional color that you feel important. No, I th think we've covered the, the bigger parts of the story. I think there's a conversation to be had about how the medical community ignored patients who saw what was happening to them from these antibiotics and how the patients were dismissed and often seen as psychiatric patients rather than patients who were raising valid medical issues. So there's a... Um, part of the discussion where we need to ask the medical community to be a little more curious and be a little more attentive to what patients are saying that um, may be true that they haven't considered before. But other than that part of the conversation, I think we've covered most of it. So some of your doctors did dismiss your complaints? Most of them. The vast majority. And not only mine, but but all all people who've been injured by these antibiotics, the vast majority of medical community have dismissed them, have humiliated them. I had a Mayo physician write in my medical record that I had magical thinking and false fixed beliefs about Levaquin and sent me to a psychiatrist. She told me I could come back for follow-up care as long as I didn't talk about Levaquin. Um, it's been, it's humiliating. It's degrading it's um it's very it's very difficult but mine's just one example of thousands that's one of the biggest complaints from people who've been injured by these drugs is that they're they're not taken seriously and it's it's a it's a problem well i hope that physicians take all of the complaints seriously and i'm sorry for the experiences that you you've had um thanks i appreciate it I wish you all the luck, Linda. Um, Linda Martin on Healthcare Unfiltered, really exposing stories that uh, only happen, you might think they're fiction, but they're actually real. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. I also appreciate you listening to Linda Martin as she describes her story 
and what she went through uh, the entire, um, you know, this is just fascinating, disturbing. I don't know. There are so many adjectives I can talk about this story, but it is really important for all of us to realize what we are dealing with. Um, I appreciate you tuning in to support the podcast and, and let me know how I am doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or on my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Don't forget to ask for the amazing healthcare, t healthcare on culture t-shirt. This is the best t-shirt that you can wear when you are exercising or when you are walking or when you are doing whatever you're doing. Also, don't forget to purchase and order my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story about the Monsanto trials and the search of justice. You can find this book on all bookstore outlets such as Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or on my publisher's website, Johns Hopkins University Press website. This book describes my story as I served as a, an expert witness against Monsanto in the first three litigation trials that went in front of a jury. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Buddha. Three things cannot be long hidden. The sun, the moon, and the truth. Until next time, take care.